What's up, podcast world? Welcome to Hollywood Hate Me. I am your host, T. Huff. This is episode 23. Now, I'm really excited about bringing this episode to you guys because today we sit down with Blake Robbins. Blake Robbins is an actor, director. Blake Robbins has been acting for a long time. He's been in the show called The Oz. He's been an entourage, Sons of Anarchy, Control, Alt-Delete, The Office, The O.C., Anyway, he's been in a lot of stuff. I don't mean to just shoot them all out to you like that. But uh, Blake Robin takes a few minutes. Or, or he actually kind enough to to spend some quality time with the Hollywood Hate Me crew to talk about a lot of things indie filmmaking. He uh, took off the actor's hat for a little bit and put on the writer's director's hat. That's one of the things that, that he was, he's been interested in doing. And his first film was called The Sublime and the Beautiful. He made it for thirty thousand dollars. He sits down and talk about writing the film and how to just do that throw up draft and not letting grammar get in the way of of your creativity. He also talks about why you should not make a short in film school. He has a very interesting take on that. And I agree with him wholeheartedly, me being a film school graduate and uh, and, and what I got out of my short film, which was next to nothing. But um, he has some great points on that as far as not making a a short film in film school. And then he also, you know, encourages the, uh, the Hollywood hate me crew to think outside of the box on all facets of, uh, making your, 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 your indie film. That's the only way that you're going to be able to stand out is by you trying to not put yourself in the box. Uh, Blake Robbins just has a whole lot of knowledge that he shared with us, a whole lot of insights on filmmaking from him being on big studio pictures as an actor, him being on TV studio sets as an actor. And from his $30,000 feature, he immediately got hired to direct a $3 million feature. So that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty nice jump there. And, uh, you know, I'm really, as you can tell, I'm really excited about this episode because, uh, he drops a lot of knowledge bombs and it was a lot of fun talking to him and he's a cool guy. I know you guys are going to get a lot out of the, out of this episode. So let's go ahead and get on with the show. This is Blake Robbins. Are you an aspiring filmmaker looking to leave your mark on the big screen? You've come to the right place. Welcome to Hollywood Hate Me with your host, director T. Huff. Blake Robbins, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to bring you on to the show because uh, you have a, a long background. I mean, just a rich background in acting. And then you've uh, made a transition into directing. You know, you started off directing a, a low-budget film, which is what, what all of us here at Hollywood Hate Me are doing or are trying to do. So, so. And I- I wouldn't even say it was low budget. I would say it was closer to no budget, but yes, I understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I want to bring you on uh, first. Let's, let's start off with uh, you just telling us a little bit about yourself. How'd you got into film and. Oh, wow. Okay. We're going back. Uh, I'll try You know, when I run into people over, uh, you know, that I haven't talked to in about 20 years, I usually say to them, Hey, give me the five or six lines that let me know best. <laughs> what's been going on with you, you yeah. know, thanks to Facebook, you run into people. Uh-huh. So I'm going to try and keep the five or six lines. So yep, that works. 
somewhere in my mid twenties, I got this crazy idea that I just had to be an actor. So I went to acting school in New York City, uh, attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, uh, was fortunate enough to get into the company, uh, which meant I got to do about five or six plays and a scene night, did my scene night, didn't get any attention from the industry, so I had to figure it out. Um, I will give a caveat that I, I had graduated um, college with a business degree, so so a lot of what I do and a lot of my answers and a lot of my thoughts all have, uh, you know, take the shape of, uh, you know, a business approach. Got married, had a wife, you know, got three kids, did all that stuff. Took a long time for my acting career to take hold. Uh, you know, I got to say about eight years after I got out of the American Academy before I got my first real acting job with any significance. That was an HBO series called Oz, which was kind of, uh, you know, just one of those lightning strike events that we can cover or not cover, depending on where you want to take the conversation. Uh, that led to me having sort of a blue collar career, uh, commercials, some theater, definitely when I was in New York. I even did some here in LA, but didn't really get paid for it. A lot of commercials, a lot of guest stars. And during this entire 20 years, I was sort of, I would say uh, that was my film school. I was sort of apprenticing. I always had the, uh, the mindset of a filmmaker as I was working as an actor and uh, egged on or urged by a few of my acting buddies. I wrote my first script and uh, when I couldn't get it financed, I, I figured out how to raise some money on Kickstarter and do literally that first film in 2014 for under $30,000. That led to another film, which I've just completed, where I was hired to direct and produce. That uh, that film we made for significantly more. Uh, I would put that in the low-budget category, but uh, I think we did the whole movie for just north of $3 million. And uh, so now I'm trying to create more, more opportunities for myself. Uh, keep writing, keep directing. Uh, and I love acting. So, you know, so far I haven't had to choose one job or another. I, I've been able to, fortunate to do do all three of them when, you know, time permitting and, and circumstances permitting. That's that's maybe the 10 line version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's and, and if anyone wants to know my credits, they can look me up on IMDb. That's always an awkward thing, but uh, yeah. just pull a little bit of shape. Like I said, it was my first job, and, and most people, if they see me in the mall over Christmas shopping, they generally know me from The Office, where I played uh, Tom Halpert, Jim's older brother, in a few episodes. Uh, okay. There are some hardcore Firefly fans out there who recognize that I was in an episode or two of, of you know, there was only 13 or 12 that they originally did. So some of them recognize me as Agent McGinnis. Um, a lot of people recognize me as the guy who is dipping his son into the fake socks for the for the Hanes sock commercial. Okay, so you said that you um you know you you were acting and you said that you're on the set with a filmmaker yep. type of mind. Like, yep. were you on set uh, bugging the production team and the director, you know, asking questions here and there, or were you just sitting there quietly taking notes? Like, yeah, what? well, as an actor, you can't bug anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You bet. You better be the least problem for anyone and everyone on that set. Uh, no, just a, a film film school of observation. If if I ever gotten myself into situations where I I felt you know maybe a mentor type relationship or or some of those things come along, but you know you can't go into it as an actor 
trying to get a film school, you know, out of it. You've got to kind of have, have to let that happen organically. Uh, I, one thing I didn't realize at the time that I was blessed by was that when I started working on Oz, I got an experience that, that most people don't get, which is there was no problem with me hanging around Vil Video Village as long as I kept my opinions and my thoughts to myself for the most part. And, you know, no one, no one wants to be slowed down. No one wants to hear what you have to say <laughs> about a scene. But if you just sit there and kind of watch, and I didn't want to sit in my trailer all alone. I didn't know any better is the truth of the matter. So I would just, you know, once I was ready, you know, you're there for a few hours before your scene starts shooting. And I would just go watch the other actors work and watch the directors talk to them. And I just, it started like that. And then me not knowing any better, I just kept doing it because like I said, I didn't know any better. And I, I guess I kind of got savvy to that it wasn't really expected when I moved out to LA and I saw that I was like the only actor around Video Village. I would just, if I notice, because things can heat up around Video Village, that's definitely a good time to go, you know, maybe see craft service and get yourself an apple or something. But yeah. for the most part, if things are going well and everyone's enjoying themselves and you're not bugging anyone and you get in the back, don't take anyone, don't take the wrong person's chair. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and just hang back there. And then, and then I got to work in independent films where I helped maybe bring a little bit of the casting, you know, stuff. So I maybe get a co-producer credit. Then I, then I had a little more uh, of a reason and a right to be there. And, and, you know, and I would take more advantage of that. But, but if I was working on a larger studio budget thing, yeah, I'm not going to go anywhere near video village. Uh, you know, I'm paid to show up, do my acting and, and get out of there. So even now as an actor, that's become a filmmaker, it's not my job to, you know, be the actor. Yeah. Did yeah. I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, he did, because there's so many different pathways to becoming a director. And yeah. and this is my yep. fir first time having an actor who's, you know, who's becoming a director as well. So I was just curious as okay. far as to, to uh, like what you did on set. So did well, you... Well, we all lean to our strengths. Mm -hmm. We all lean to our strengths. So as an actor, I, I one of the other elements that came into play was that I had begun about four or five, six years ago, um, coaching actors, other actors for auditions. It was just something I was good at articulating, you know, to other actors, um, how to work on a scene, how to break down a scene, what to think about a scene. I got all of that from really good acting teachers that I had or really good directors myself. And some actors are good at talking to uh, other actors and, and other actors may be phenomenal actors, but that isn't their strength is, is sort of how to help another actor. I noticed it was a strength of mine. So as a filmmaker, that's where I lean. That's that's where I bring something that maybe another director isn't as comfortable with. And then there's this whole slew of things that maybe they got from film school that I don't have that I have to lean on uh, my cinematographer for, you know, in terms of, you know, going through the, the, you know, the decision process of, you know, what cameras, what lenses, what, you know, what format, what, you know, just all of that type of thing. But that's true of of any area of artistic uh, endeavor, there's going to be strengths and weaknesses. Again, one of the things I really bring to it is a business mindset. I think that's been invaluable to me as a director is um, that, I, that unlike directors who have never gone to business school, I really do think about the business of making a movie. And that factors into a lot of the decision making that I that I make. Where another director, that might not be something they think about. How much are we spending here today? And how do we get this? I, I've made two films and they both come in under budget. I, and I'm proud of that. And I don't know that most directors even, depending on the level, unless they're spending their own money, don't really care, which yeah. is sad. 
know, you, you have a fiscal responsibility to the people who are trusting you with their money to, to make the best movie at the most, uh, the most responsible price. Yeah, that's true because, yeah. uh, that's the way I see it as well as a director. Yeah. We're pretty much, um, like lucky. That's why be, Hollywood hates us. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they, you. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, we're, we're they don't lucky. Even know I exist. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. They don't know I exist either, but they will. They will, dang it. They will, exactly. <laughs> Everything changes. Everything changes. It takes one job. We're, all, we're always one job away from uh, from something extraordinary like that. Yeah, I was saying that uh, uh, that's one of the things I try to make sure I do as well when I'm in a director chair because um, I used to AD a lot before I went to film school. Yep. And so, like, I, I paid yep. attention to the budget and, I mean, not the budget, the schedule. And I know that if we're yep. not on schedule, we're not on budget. So, you know, I brought yep. that to the set as well. And and then also you get a little bit of freedom, too, because it's like once you're on schedule and everything's cooking, you don't get the, yep. the pressure from the higher ups or from the suits. So then you're able yeah. to, you know, deliver your vision the way you want to deliver it and on time. And if you bring it in under budget, shoot, that's even better. Yeah. Uh, so for for your first film, uh, Sublime. Yeah. Yeah. Sublime and the Beautiful. Yeah. The Sublime you, and Beautiful. Yeah. Did you write the screenplay yep. for that one? I did. I did. Um, it was my first endeavor into writing. Uh, it was an idea that was very personal to me. It was a uh, thought that I had that I shared with an actor friend of mine, and he uh, he's just one of those guys everyone should have in their life where he encourages everything you do, and, and, and it's not a um, sort of a... Um, He's not just raw, raw, rawing you to death. He's actually believes in you, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, and encouraging you, but also, uh, you know, putting your feet in the fire. If you say you got an idea, he's the one to say, hey, what'd you do with that? And and I try to be that person for other people now as well. So um, how, how long did it take you to write the screenplay? Well, I started writing it probably in 2000 and roughly. And what happened was it just took a long time for me to find the right you know, or create the right situation for me to make the film. Um, so with that happening, what happens is I would revisit every few months or every half a year, and then I'd make another pass. I would say, and it's hard for me to remember, that originally it took me a few years to get it written, which is really too long. It shouldn't. I mean, you know, at this point now I've written things in, you know, anywhere from six months to a year. Mm hmm generally, probably not less than four or five months. I'm kind of a writer of inspiration. I really have to hear the voices in my head and I and I stay up overnight and I just kind of write stream of consciousness. And then I rewrite when I, because I write longhand most of the time and then I put it into the computer. Now, I, now I've had some several writing partners depending on the project um, and, I, and I find a different way of working each time. That time I was kind of just feeling around in the dark for, for what I wanted to put on the page. Um, the other thing is I didn't have to write to sell the script because it was a very unsellable script. Like no one's going to make us a, a film of this subject matter with no, uh, you know, celebrity attachment. Yeah. So that took off, alleviated the pressure of having to write a certain way. I, I wrote it for me as the filmmaker to make, so it was a blueprint. And, uh, and when I got into the process, we shot the film in 2012. If, if that gives you a little bit of an idea, I, I probably had, I probably thought about the idea for a year before I had enough going on in my brain that I just, and with my friend's encouragement that I just couldn't sleep at night. And, and I, you know, I call it the vomit draft, the draft uh -huh. you just get out of you. Yeah. Um, I probably did that in uh, two overnights. Okay. Two, so, two overnights. Wow. 
Yeah, I probably well because I was writing in shorthand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would, you know, I was using real names instead of made-up names, even though they were fictitious circumstances. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, so you know, so my character was named Blake, you know, and the wife's name was Karen, and mm-hmm. you know, even though none of these things happened to us, that those were just sort of prototypes for for who these characters would later become with different circumstances and different things, you know. Um, and, and it just, uh, you know, in fact, it was a real intimate story about a lot of things that I was very familiar with. Um, the next thing, about a year later after I had written that one, I kind of tested myself to see if I could write something more adventurous. And I kind of wrote uh, a film that hasn't been produced yet, but that uh, really taught me a lot about my writing and my writing style because, uh, you know, it was my version of, a, you know, a Paul Thomas Anderson uh type of Magnolia type movie where there's, you know, a lot of different storylines that are intersecting and, you know, that type of movie. You know, I I would say it was maybe more Robert Altman than PTA, but that type of version, I just wanted to see if I could explore handling so many different characters and so many different stories and make them relevant to each other and kind of still have them all on an overall theme. And and it was just sort of a, and and again, though, the original idea was this idea that was in my you know, in my brain for months until it just had to come out again and I had to vomit it out. And again, with the vomit draft comes pretty fast. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just get <laughs> yeah. it out. You just get the idea and you just want a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, that's right. Because a lot of times, uh, like I write vomit drafts too and I try to, yep. like I come up with an idea for like a scene before yeah. and I have to just make a quick note on the side of the script and like keep on moving. And yep. so, yeah, just to keep it keep it flowing just have it keep on coming out yeah and i think one of the best things about that is you don't i don't know you know again not having had a film school not having gone to school for writing or anything um but i have educated myself along the way so what i'm about to share with you i can't remember where i heard this or learned this from but it became very uh, you know, I loved hearing it. It, it. it made a lot of sense to me. Um, there's two sides of your brain that write. There's the uh, the creative uh, in the flow. You just, you know, you're just getting it on the page. And the other side of your brain actually works in the rewriting and the evaluation of what you've written. So you can't do both at the same time. And, and I think some writers struggle with, they're trying to write and rewrite at the same time. And they're different sides of the brain. They're different thought processes. So I try to make sure that I know when I'm sitting down, uh, which of the two am I doing? If it's just to write, then I'm not, I'm not going to worry about grammar, punctuation, spelling, you know, any of those things, which, you know, I just read an article by uh, Bukowski and he was saying, you know, grammar's for people. You know, I, God bless him because there's so many grammar Nazis out there, but mm-hmm. he was like, grammar's for non-creative people. You know, <laughs> sometimes you just need to put it down and don't let grammar get in the way of, of creating, of creation. Creation, he holds, you know, at least in this article I was reading about him, you know, yeah. has more value to him. And I was like, oh, God bless that he said that. I mean. Oh, yeah, shoot. That, that makes a whole lot of sense then for me because that's a lot of times where I'm telling, you know, when I, when I have uh, – you know, my close friends yeah. who read the first drafts, I tell them, don't pay attention to the grammar, to the spelling. Right. Like, I, I did not even, right. you know, I just had to get it out. And that's why I could only share specific, Yeah, that's yeah, why I could only share it with human a few being people. That, a very specific human being speaks grammatically correct English. Why would you write, uh, you know, all this dialogue grammatically correct when almost nobody speaks grammatically correct 
all the time. I, I, I've only known one or two people in my life that that didn't sound weird and that if you boiled it down, you would realize that it's just who they are that they speak, you know, grammatically correct. So, so why would you write that way? I, I, for me, I cast the characters either from celebrities or actor friends or friend friends, and then they talk to me. And that's what I write. Okay, I hear you. So, so uh, after you're done with this, uh, when the script was finished, did you yep. have a, a few people that you showed it to, and then say that this is what we're going to make? And and what was like, uh, what was your process after that? Yeah, the first thing I did early in the writing process to elevate the material itself is I got a handful of actors together, probably four or five times over the course of a year. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. uh, I would get actors that I knew. Uh, you know, because there's two types of actors predominantly. There's the actors who just, you know, take their part and run like a wild horse. And then there's the actor like me that thinks about things, pulls at the strings, asks the questions, and thinks thinks about things more as a filmmaker than just, uh, here's my part, let me go. Neither is right or wrong. They're just different breeds of actors. And, and, and either can be extraordinary performers. But I kind of pulled actors I knew that seemed to me, whether they'd written or directed or not, were more interested in bigger picture, interested in idea, you know what I mean, that pull, pull up the threads. So I knew that they would be not only able to read the material, but ask me the right questions or question the right things. And so I would just buy pizza for everyone, drinks, and we would casually sit down in reading groups and we'd go, you know, 5, 10, 15 pages at a time through the whole script. And they would say things to me like, hey, did you ever think, why did this happen? You know, I, I didn't like this or I did like that. And whatever resonated with me, I would note on, and I would take that to my next draft. And, and that process really did help me elevate the script to a place where I was sort of proud to share it with people. And people were like, oh, this is interesting. Um, now, people thinking this is interesting and hiring a first-time filmmaker is, you know, that's a large distance to cover. So it became evident to me along the way, and I guess I've segued out of that point. But I, it became evident to me um, through two or three failed attempts to make it conventionally for like two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. that I was. It seemed like I was never going to get that money from anyone, and no one was going to take that chance on me. Um, at that point, I was willing to uh, just be the writer and the actor and and hire other directors. But even a couple of those fall apart with directors that absolutely, you know, have gone on to prove that they were, you know, directors of merit that should have been hired. But thankfully, something was looking out for me because they knew that in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be a director. So the fact that it took so long turned out to be the blessing where I, where I realized a year before I did it, hey, look, the business person in me said, you know what, I can get two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars $250,000 worth of filmmaking on the screen for a tenth of the price if I do it certain ways. Um, now, I highly recommend Mark Soloroff's No Budget Film School, which I think you also are aware of. Yeah, yeah I'm aware of it. Um, I'm actually trying to get yeah. him on the show. I've taken his class. It's a great class, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. We could talk about it. Yeah. A bit. Well, uh, you know, my brain was already working that way because I come from a business background. Um, taking the class was not only inspirational, but it was, um, there were a lot of point by points. And then he brings in other filmmakers who've done it so you can ask your questions of them. And you can hear their stories and you start to realize, oh, I've been thinking about this whole thing incorrectly, which is most of the successful directors that we look to and we think of out there in the world, we go, oh, you know, I wish I was Christopher Nolan. Well, then you find out Christopher Nolan made a $12,000 DIY film called Following. And and you go, oh, I want to be Joe Carnahan. And you realize he made one for a couple, you know, 
thousand dollars. You know, launched the one about uh, you know chopping up cars, where he everyone in the film was kind of who they were in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, but it wasn't a documentary. He he treated it like a narrative. He just you know they become uh, do it yourself by any means possible. Take advantage of your available resources and tell a good story and certain things. And, and that's what I did. I, I told a story where I could control so many of the variables and use what I had access to. And you start to realize um, we are living in a time period where you can make a, a feature film. In fact, I keep telling people, unless you're in one of the top five or ten film schools and the and the program is designed for you to make a short film, do not make a short film. I highly recommend that you don't. A flawed feature will do more for your career than a short film. You still have to... I mean, the Duplass brothers have another approach to it make as many you know no budget shorts yeah. as you can so you get better and better and better mm-hmm. i say if you can make a short film for twenty thousand dollars and i've seen this done so many times you can definitely find a version of some story that you could tell where you can make a feature for that same twenty thousand dollars and you should go for it there's just more you can do with the feature and you've proven yeah. that you can direct the feature and the truth of the matter is like in business most of the money you're going to spend is spent on the first day of filming yeah, so why yeah. not just stay there a little bit longer yeah yeah I'm so, I'm, film. I'm so i'm so excited to hear you say that because that's that's what i was saying while i while i was in film school how, you know, yeah. they gave us a budget. We had the, all the equipment yeah. we needed. We had insurance. And I yeah. and I even spoke to my advisors, and I told them that, man, I could make a feature for this. And they advised yeah, yeah, they don't want to. No, nah, no, nah, they, they don't want to for legal reasons. You know, like yep. let's say if I make a feature and it blows up and it ends up making millions, but then I got yep. the equipment from the school and the crew from the school everyone and, yeah everyone's going to want chain of title and chain of ownership and who who gets what and how does everyone participate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they know the, what happens if you made the next Blair Witch project with your you know with your, with your student film on a school's budget with your yeah. student film on a school budget exactly yeah but you could <laughs> that should be the mindset that mm-hmm. you just but, but see if you go to the right film schools that's personal you get better as a filmmaker you learn things that's it took me 20 years to do what a lot of people can learn in fact there's a lot i still don't know because i didn't go to film school i treat that as a as a plus and a minus you know i just have to try to stay aware of where i'm deficient and where i think i know something and i don't and and all those types of things. But I break a lot of rules. I mean, I made my first film with a couple of the guys from Chapman, and I know when they looked at it, you know, because they were on the production producing team, uh, there were some things like, what'd you do with the lighting there? And, you know, and, 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 and my cinematographer gets 98% of the credit for it, but we decided on a lot of these things ahead of time. They would never allow you guys at, at film school to go out and make a feature film without any grip or electric department, you know, at yeah, all. That's true. You know, that's just, well, what are you doing? And it's like, we did that. And I thought the film looked really cool. And, and yeah, you know, I guess I couldn't really do it with a union, but the cinematographer and I were down for it and I got him some help and I got him a few extra hands and we did it with, you know, you know, it becomes a by any means possible. We did it with a lot of, you know, <laughs> available light and, and a few instruments you know you mm-hmm. go to home depot and grab a few of those uh china ball lights you know that's soft and you use those you get a reflector and you're good to go yeah yeah i saw a lot of clips i wasn't able to, to check out the film yet but i've seen uh trailers clips and and, and mm-hmm. the film does look great and um yep, appreciate that. And, and so um i know the you audience I know the audience is going to, going to want to know, like, what rules did you guys break? 
And um, and also, what what type? I mean, since we're there now, what what type of camera did you guys choose to to use for that shoot? Um, I shot it on the red. Okay. Well, here's a rule, and here's something that I got from Mark Stoloff. I shot it on the red one because we could afford it, but. But my bigger rule is I hired a cinematographer and we talked about the movie we wanted to make. And out of that conversation came the decisions about what camera and what we had. But mm-hmm. but I would say this is a rule. Okay. In film school, you're taught to only shoot on certain things certain ways. In real life, if you have the right talents and the right people around you, the least important thing is what you shoot it on. Yeah. And I, the I example agree 100%. That I, and the example I run to right away now is sean baker shooting tangerine on his iphone with a bunch of lenses you know mm-hmm. before that i still would have said this but now there's empir- empirical evidence that says that what we've been saying all along is hey it doesn't really matter what you shoot on we shot on a red camera because i was able to bring this production facility on as a uh, as a film company uh as, as sort of one of the owners of the producers of the film so they charged me 20 percent what they would normally charge me you know they gave me write up how much it would cost to okay. get the lens package that we wanted and a really old at that time red camera this camera had been put through it you know what i mean this camera's pretty dented up <laughs> but uh but it was a red a red one and oh, uh and we got lens package and this was in the midwest and this whole package would have cost us about 10 grand and i said look i've got thirty thousand dollars to make a movie if i'll cover your your bottom line expenses to keep your you, you know, pay your rent for your, your production facility for this month, what would that be? And they said, well, probably to pay our rent and in minimal expenses, we at least minimally need about $2,000. I said, how about if I give you 2000 and for the difference in the $8,000, i will bring you on and make a producer on the film and, and, and you guys participate in it that way. Now, this was a relationship I'd had. I shot some movies with them. I knew them. But it was a decision for them to make. I go back to, I built a bridge to my movie. I got $10,000 of equipment. Now, I only kept that equipment for two weeks. Okay. You know? mm-hmm. um, we shot the movie in 12 days. Again, most okay. movies don't, you know, don't shoot 90. I no. applied it because I had worked a lot in an in hour-long cable drama. I knew that generally we got about 55 minutes of content in, in, uh, in an eight-week shoot schedule. That's 12-hour days. I was like, wow. well, why don't I go add the extra four days and shoot the movie like that and get 90 minutes of content this way? So there were some creative decisions about the movie and how I shot it and why I should have shot it the way I did. Some of them were determined for me. I just personally decided to make all of those what I would say is an advantage over if I had money and had to do it another way. And if you look at that, that's kind of where all your A-list directors come from. The ability to make decisions and create, turn things from a from a not so good to a, well, this is the only way to do it. You should try and do it this way. Yeah. So um, that's why a lot of them do come from this world of no budget, do-it-yourself filmmaking. Because anyone can make uh, a lot of good decisions if there's unlimited resources. But if you have to creatively make something work with very little resources, I think you you have a leg up moving forward as a filmmaker. That's a lot of your job is turning something into a, a more creative, more interesting, more uh, sort of dynamic choice versus what we've seen done a million times the same way. Um, um, I like to back up a little bit because I really sure. like the idea. I really like what you did. Like uh, when you finished the script, you, you grabbed some actors and, yep. you, and, and you said, did you have the both type of actors at the table? Or you just try to go for the type of actors had- who... 
the, the, the type of actress who would ask me a lot of good questions, who would ask me about story, that would ask me that 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 I, I, I really selected out the actors I thought would be more interested in the bigger ideas and the bigger picture and the and the bigger questions. So because it was really my version of uh, studio script development, except I was working with people who liked movies that I liked for the most part, or you know, and would just kind of you know check me. Yeah. And and a lot of good things came out of those questions. A lot of things. Uh, uh, so I never lost myself in the writing process by doing that. But I always, you know, again, I, I think one of my strengths as a director is uh, what a creative uh, collaborator I am. Um, I think now I would say that now that I've done two films, I'm sort of a uh, a very um, very generous dictator <laughs> because. <laughs> That there does need to ultimately be one decision maker, one screen, one, you know, someone who ultimately decides. Because if you get into that situation where several people are making um, uh, bottom line creative decisions throughout the process, mm-hmm. you will get a hodgepodge of a movie. But at the same time, I don't believe if, if I left it to my own resources as to how, how good a movie I could make, I'd, I would make really bad movies. But if I bring in a cinematographer who I treat as a filmmaker, a sound team that I treat as a filmmaker, and I do it. Now I have my team, and, and for the most part, I just plug people into that process because they know how I, you know, an example is when I made, we were talking earlier about what rules did I break. Yeah. Um, I never closed down a single location in Sublime. When you see it, every single one of those locations is actually operating in business at that time. Oh, okay. um, I tried to leave a really light footprint. So, so my sound team had to be cool with the fact that there were going to be refrigerators running. And, mm. and my camera team had to be cool with the fact that there were going to be people walking through the shot. Now, how I handled that is I would stage people uh, in the entrances and the exits that would, you know, quickly tell the person that was going in that there was a potential they were walking into a live set. And if they did, which was fine, um, just not stare on the camera and please sign this form. You know what I mean? Real quick. Make sure we get a signature from you when you leave so so that we don't have any problem, you know, selling the movie down the road. Okay. And it makes a really dynamic thing. Um, when, if and when you go back and watch the movie, yeah. you'll look at all these locations, and most of those people became extras in that moment. Now, we're in the Midwest, so a lot of people just politely waited. The other thing is I wasn't yelling action and cut, so most of the time people never knew when the movie was going on. Only, you know, a couple key people. And then I worked that out with my sound and cameras how to properly slate so that I didn't drive my post-production team so insane with, you know, not having those types of things. You know, that's a rule I, I decided to break. I really liked the energy of, you know, say a sandwich shop that was operating as a sandwich shop. This production mm-hmm. value I couldn't have afforded. Now, if you gave me a million dollars for that day of shooting, yeah, yeah, you'd be able to shut it I'll down. Do it, I'll then. do it a hundred times and I'll, and I'll control, you know, and I'll talk to, you know, 50 extras and I'll shut down all their equipment and stuff. But I like the sound of life, you know, that's going mm-hmm. on. I just had to work with a sound team that, that loved that too. Yes. I've worked in the business with sound teams that no way are going to make a movie with me. No way. <laughs> they got to know it and I got to know it. Yeah. So as far but as the sound team, the... did they have, uh, they had the actors uh, on lobs? Yep. We did laughs. We did, uh, we did uh, area mics. We would do booms. They, they cover, they, they also know that I don't really love to block a scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> that like was, to... was going to be my next question. Yep. 
um, because I like the camera to find the action, depending. I mean, again, every movie has its own set of rules. I wouldn't yeah. make every movie the same way. Mm-hmm. But in that first movie, um, you know, I, I didn't want any rehearsals for Tamara, and I talked to my cinematographer, and he was down with it. He had to trust me. I had to trust him. But see, I said, I would rather have a film that goes in and out of focus artfully than have a film that's always in focus and lose this this life that's going on of these places. And, you know, I don't know. I heard it from someone better than me. Um, <laughs> for who it was. It was some legendary filmmaker, probably no, uh, the guy who did... Uh, Probably the guy who did, uh, he was pretty adventurous. Um, I'm dropping the name on it, but, uh, that's fine. But it makes sense because if it fits, if it fits your story, he likes the, 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 um, the camera to find the action because those early cuts where the camera is not privy to knowing exactly what's going on actually create the dynamic that he wants in the editing room. Because think about it, if you do three or four takes, by the third take, everyone kind of knows the shape of it, so you get a slightly different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to lose the first two things where there could be some magic in there of you know the moment of discovery or of an actor. And I'm also trying to remove as much of the artificial feeling of making a movie that most actors suffer through. You know, if they could just sort of um, warm up, be in character, take a rip, you know, and not have to. You know, I don't want them always feeling like they're on when they have to be on and that they have to be careful. So I like to break that up a little bit. So, you know, I'll start maybe a conversation with them and give a little, you know, signal to my camera and sound that we're getting close to, you know, where I can sense the actors in the right place. And just look at the actor and say, hey, why don't you show me what you do? Okay. Without even yelling action. And then when that was done, I'd say, hey, that's great. Can we cut on that? And they'd look at me, you know, and then by the second day, they know I do those things, but they still, they enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, it's not like it became a huge secret, mm-hmm. but still, it became a um, place where they could feel freedom to do it wrong and not worry about it. And as long as you protect them in the edit, because as an actor, I've not been protected in the edit so many times, I can't tell you, where I look at the, the, the final product and I go, why would they use that take? Why would they use that moment? I don't believe that, you know. Okay. So, so what is that? Can you tell me what that, can you tell us what that means exactly as far as, uh, like for the audience who members who don't know what you mean by protecting your actors in the edit? You've got to put it together in such a way, you know, I I don't know. I guess this is a very subjective thing. This is maybe what someone would point to and say, that's either talent or not talent. Cause I don't Mm -hmm. know why one editor or filmmaker doesn't know that they haven't protected the actor but I was not putting them in the best position to show the audience that there's, there's a character here and there's a truth here and there's an authentic reality that's existing. Some filmmakers might like the way something's lit a little better than the truth. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or like, you know, something, and it'll go with something that doesn't really protect the actor because you go, Oh, I don't believe for a second this actor in this moment. But maybe the filmmakers chosen the lighting or, or maybe the script or maybe all of those things. I'll always choose the performance first and protect my actor. Mm-hmm. And then the rest I can work around. One, because I'm not making studio films at studio dollars, and that's where I think a lot of no-budget, low-budget filmmakers get it wrong, is they make the same decisions a studio would make, except the studio has the chance to infinitely do it over if they get it wrong, and you don't. So why would you do it the same way? When I sat down with my editor, when I went into Sublime, I said, on the first pass, I don't really even care about the story. Only focus on performance. 
Oh, okay. We'll 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 fill in story once I see what you know. So she was like, "Oh wow, okay, this is a new way." Because she came from kind of a studio world, which was mm-hmm. great because that added something to the film too. But she was like, "Oh, this is kind of an interesting way to do it." So we're gonna forget scripts. Or I said, "Well, you'll have the script, so you can kind of work it out." But um, yeah, I said, I, "I think independent films work more successfully than essentially a studio or I, what I call a studio adjacent film, which is." like a $15 million mini studio film, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of studio decision-making too. And listen, when the studios come to me and want to make a movie, I will make an adjustment. I'll still be who I am, but I will, you know, <laughs> I'll make that type of film that way so they don't hate us too long. You know what I mean? So they kind of love us. I'm yeah, because play on Hollywood hate me. But uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, the best independent films have the best performances. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, because, like you said, those are the awards are won. It's because, uh, like you said, those are the filmmakers who are able to, you know, as we call it, uh, you know, they kill their babies, as far as yeah. the the shots that you know, the slow dolly push-ins yep. and the yep. and they're more worried about that than what's actually happening on the actors' faces or the lines that are, you know, coming out their mouths or, like you said, the performances. Because there are sometimes where you know, a lot of times filmmakers. A lot of the filmmakers is when they're sitting down there in the editing suite and they think about, yep. man, it took a long time to set that shot up, so it has to make yep. it in the movie. And that's not what it's about. It's about the yeah. uh, it's about the actors' performances. Yeah, well, and I think you're also touching on something that uh, many of me and my friends have talked about, which is it's hard, especially in this day and age, because um, the equipment has gotten priced so much more reasonably too. So every film you see has a like you, you don't not see a film school film, right? If you go, mm-hmm. say, say, say we go, we want to use Chapman as example. Say we use AFI or okay. anywhere else, or U, UCLA, USC, mm-hmm. and you go to a, a a night of screenings where you see ten or fifteen shorts. Yeah. How many of those films will not have dollars? Every single one will. Yeah. Not- Every single one will have, you know, and and I would say half of them will have some thirty foot dollars move. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some some epic dolly move. Mm-hmm. How many of them will not have now a you know some type of drone shot? <laughs> because yeah. the economy of the drone is so cheap now. Guess what? None of those decisions are being made by the story, and, and like, what's the movie I'm making? They're simply being made based on the availability of the equipment. I would say the worst reason for a shot to be in your movie is because it can be. Yeah, really true. killing movies. It's it really is. killing movies because. I fall out of a movie every time I go, why am I 30 feet above this? And none of that makes any sense to me. Like, it's not telling me anything about what I care about. It's not relating. You know what I mean? Yeah. Listen, when you get hired by the studio, go ahead and get your proper drone. Or, you know what I mean? And your proper, not a drone, but, you know, look, I'd love to make a modern day All the President's Men with these, you know, big looking down mag massive tracking shot you know mm-hmm. you know what i've got to be making all the president's men or a facsimile i can't be making my little low budget no budget film and just do it because i have access to it yeah they're trying I to start noticing your shots because of the shots, and most of the time i notice it's because oh look at this movie that has literally no idea how it wants to cover the movie we've got two shots we've got over the scale and that's another thing <laughs> People say, where's your shot list? And really all they want you to do is hand them a script written down with wide, medium, over, over type inserts. Mm-hmm. That is the worst approach to telling a story. <laughs> yeah. 
That that is true. It doesn't value. It doesn't value anything more than the other thing. It literally. So you start to watch a movie and you go, "Oh, I get it. Okay, here's the why. Here's the establishing shot. Here's the. It's just cookie cutter." And when you're making independent films, you can't do that. If you make a studio film, do it. Go for it. All, 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 first of all, all those shots are going to be lit correctly or appropriately, or at least they should be, or interestingly, depending on the filmmaker. Uh, number two, an editor you know, who is familiar with that world and those type of stories is going to take your coverage and make your movie for you. All good. But if you're just trying to crack into the business, you better have something unique to say, and you better say it visually as, as well, because Nobody ever, ever, you know, I'm stealing this from Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. And he said it, and I think most of us believe this. No one revisits a film because of plot. You know, no one. He, he, he said, I revisit a film because of character, story, because mm-hmm. there's some magical moment where someone does something. and I, That's got to be your approach to shots, too. You don't yeah. want to just tell the plot. That's like book on tape, you know, I, whatever. I, anyone can do it that way. If, if everyone can make your movie, you're making the wrong movie the wrong way. Films yeah. that I see now that I program for Slamdance, because that's where my film played, and I've programmed for a few other film festivals, the ones that I respond to and that I see programmers at film festivals respond to are when you think, oh, guess what? Someone's made a movie here that no one else would make in a way that no one else has made it. That's, that's, the, that's the daily double right there. Once you've done that, you've already put your foot in the door because now it's like, oh, I don't think, and, and if you look at the films that launch people into, you look at the indie films that have launched some people. Some mm-hmm. of them, you know, that people are so craving something different that films like The Lobster, you know what I mean? And, and yeah, I haven't seen that film yet. I've heard a lot about films. The Lobster, but I haven't seen it yet. People are Swiss Army Night, yeah, man. Uh, people are just looking for something different, but there's a lot of ways to approach that. I would share that you got to make a movie. And like when I made Sublime, one of our first rules was this. Mm-hmm. I was going to draw up a shot for the scene with my cinematographer and with looking at what, and also I can't make a shot list until I see the um, the environment. Anyway, people who make it off off the script are, are fooling themselves because you don't know what the light's going to look like. You're not going to, you know what I mean? You're not looking at the location. The best shots that I came up with were, because when I'm looking at the location, it starts to inform me what it wants to do. If, if I know what the movie is about, I can, with my cinematographer, and I mean, we, we put an hour, uh, we put in probably on both movies. I worked with this brilliant dude named Lynn Moncrief, who's just brilliant and a genius, and, and I love him, and we like movie, making movies together, That's thankfully. Awesome. Uh, but we, we probably spend 100 hours of conversation before we even get into pre-production, so it's technically pre-production of us talking about the script, what we like about it, what we like about each scene, what we like about each, and it's all based on what we dig about what we're looking at in the page, and out of that comes a visual conversation about, well, why don't we shoot some of this stuff through stuff so we deny access to the audience, so we pick when it matters that we actually are right down the barrel looking at through a person's face versus when it's obstructed. Why don't we... You know, based on the tone of the film, why don't we blow out some of these, you know, fluorescent lights so it feels as thickly as, you know, these things. But we won't, don't want it too noticeable that people are distracted and now paying attention to what we've done with the lighting. You know, it's, it's, it's 100 hours of conversation. So when we get to a location and we look at it, we can go, okay. And I said on Sublime, if I can shoot every scene as a one let's do it. We only, have, we only have 120 hours to make this movie, you know, 12 days. 10 hours a day, 
basically if you're working a day you're lucky if you're getting two hours of you know camera rolling on stuff mm -hmm. so i said why don't every scene i said the only thing the only reason to add a shot is if while we're shooting the shot that we love we love it just as much that's not the way people construct coverage no they not at all construct coverage to cover their asses but mm -hmm. they don't know how to tell a story <laughs> I, I definitely painted myself and my editor at times into a corner that we had to solve creatively and i think because i did it once before i got better at it and i'm i'm better at coverage now but i would rather paint myself into that creative corner than make a movie that looks like everyone else's movie where it's wide tight over over you know medium yeah. and so it, uh, that just didn't have any value yeah <laughs> so it means i don't know what's important so with your cinematographer so so that's great that you guys were able to spend that time on a screenplay and build that visual the, the visual relationship you know between each yeah. other it's like one of the things that i do I mean, I don't know if you do the same thing, but uh, when I'm writing a screenplay, I'm just a writer. I don't even think yeah. about the shots or anything like right. that. I just let the story come out. Because a lot of times people yep. ask me, okay, now, how do you plan on shooting this? What is it going to look like? Like, man, I'm mm -hmm. just I'm just writing right now. And then, just, right. just like what it sounds like, what you do, it's good to, after you're done with the writing, then you put on the visual hat, the director hat, and just try to yeah. sit in there and, and, and soak in the story, then the, the whole visual uh, side of it will come to you. And you're right. There is a I lot think, of, I think I write, I think I write visual. I think I write pictures. I, I think, I think, you know, I'm writing a treatment, sort of an outline that will become an outline film. And some of the scenes I've literally described visually how I want to shoot it because I'm not writing the movie to sell. I'm just, I write it to remind me and my collaborators of what, you know, feels interesting. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea because when people ask me, when you did Sublime, did, how did you write, direct, produce, and, and act in your movie all at the same time? And I used yeah. exactly what you said. Is I never did any of it simultaneously. I did each thing one at a time. When I was the writer, I was the writer. When I was the director, I was the director. When I was the actor, I was the actor. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. there, there may have been some overlap, but I focused on the thing I needed to be doing in that moment. And they would quickly switch hats if necessary and make a decision directorially or something like that. And the same, uh, you know, I, I have a small part in, in this next movie. I, I wasn't in every scene like it was in my first movie, but the same thing happened. And, and I could only do it if I had a cinematographer that I truly trusted and believed in and knew that mm -hmm. we were so much on the same page that he's sort of, you know, he really is the second director <laughs> to a certain degree, whether he talks to actors or not. That's probably the only thing he's not doing. Yeah. But he is talking to me, and I am one of the actors, so in essence, you know, he won't talk to me about performance, but he is kind of a second-unit director when I'm acting, and, and we have to trust each other, and we've been through it before. When I'm writing now, because maybe I don't ever, probably of the three or four disciplines, it's the one that I'm least willing to call myself and say I'm a writer. <laughs> okay. It's the least, I, it, you know, I, and I don't hold any of my writing precious. Like when I wrote Sublime, um, I wrote it well enough to get people to do it and get there. But usually on the day on the set, I rewrote the scene with the other actor in terms of finding the circumstances and kind of boiling it down. So it turned out that much of the script was a, uh, a placeholder for a scene okay. that we then discovered together through performance. I would say that even when I was hired to direct, I did a lot of that same thing with the actors. That's kind of the work I do with them. And with the permission of the writers who in this case were producers who were watching us do this. So they had to, their job was to pull me over if there was something that 
that was falling through the grapes of that process of how do we but they, you know, fortunately in this situation, we were so um, on the same page creatively that that rarely happened. There was only a couple times where they said, hey, we're losing this or what about this? You know, they knew that they come to me with that. I don't want to I don't want to make the uh, actors too, too focused on the writing. Cause isn't that really the job of the actor to make it seem like this thing was never written to begin with? You know, that's another rule I break. Yeah, you know, yeah. Probably the unions are going to get me, but I ask my script supervisors to give all script-related notes to me because I don't want the actors feeling like they're getting it wrong or not saying something, or I'll remember that they said something in a certain way, and I'll say, hey, you know what? I really loved how we did this when we shot this scene, so here I don't mind losing that. I, I'm comfortable with what we're doing here now. And then that's just a conversation the script supervisor and I will have, but... Okay. Um, but, but, so, but in terms of sitting down writing, and maybe because this next project is going to be predominantly an outline movie where we work all from outline. Oh, the script mint. Um, That's what I'm working on right now, which is really uh, something, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm trying new as a director, writer, director, just to like kind of like what you've been saying this whole podcast, a way of just breaking all the rules and just focus yep. on the character, the situation and what I have access to and just make a yep. fun film. Uh, you know, get that Absolutely. feature out. So yeah, it's really interesting that that you're you're working on one too. I heard that it's called a scriptment instead of a script or a treatment, and uh, <laughs> you know, some people shoot off of that. So that that's something that you're working on now. I mean, you don't, you don't have to get into details as far as you know what it's yeah, about. Yeah, I've got two. I've got two. Okay. I would say um, I've got one for my manager um, that is probably in the fifteen twenty twenty million dollar range, which we've got a script that we're um, uh, that we're working on in terms of development. Uh, so okay. I will work with another writer and that person and I will pull that along. But see, the thing about 15 to $20 million movies is they move like battleships, move to the water. Yeah. They take forever to turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get them moving, you don't want to ever have them stop because then they don't get moving again. Yeah. And I've learned the hard way in this business that uh, I'm not going to let anyone green light me. And until they do, I don't get to do something. So I have a mentor who has a film company that specializes in these type of movies with directors that they know and love. I now have two movies under my belt. So I think that they kind of, I I pitched them this idea that I wanted and the way I wanted to do it, I kind of described it as American Midwest version of a Darden Brothers film. Okay. And I told him what the beginning, middle, and end were and what the main characters were. And he said, man, just get it on the page. I'll take it to my partners. And, uh, you know, if it all makes sense for everyone, uh, we'll be making it this year. And that's my goal. Cause it's, okay. a, that's awesome. it's a movie that's near and dear to my heart with characters that are near and dear to my heart. I don't know if I have all the answers, but I, but I love – I've written about half of it over the Christmas break. And I shared that with an editor that helped me – that edited – didn't help me. She actually edited Scent of Rain and Lightning. She said she's in. My casting director from Scent of Rain and Lightning said she's in. My my photographer, my my cinematographer said he's in. So uh, you know, we're talking about a three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar film with a handful of core cast. We're gonna do this. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Darden Brothers, but we're gonna do sort of an American Midwestern Darden Brother type film. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look them up. The Darden Brothers. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, watch called well, it's some trench L'Enfant, or the baby. Uh, or um, a couple of years ago, they did a film, two nights in one day. Um, a lot of their stuff goes okay. to Cannes. Okay, and they're it's French. Pretty, pretty popular in Cannes. Uh, I think they're yeah, from Belgium. Okay. But yeah, they, they a lot of their stuff is French. Okay. okay. But 
All right. So, so really quick, uh, I don't want to, I want to hold you up too much longer, but I just want to, uh, as you can tell, I don't mind. I love talking stuff. <laughs> nah, this I is... love talking about this stuff. I get wound up. Yeah. yeah this My is all... boiling. This, this is all great. I'm getting a lot of, uh, stuff out of you. I mean, this is, you know, uh, this is something I'm gonna have to listen to over and over, you know, and uh, I'll probably even uh, send you an email here and there to ask you some questions, but, uh, uh absolutely. Feel free to. But from uh the from the subline to to your Blind next film, yeah, from the subline and yeah. beautiful to the next film, uh, like what was the difference that you noticed from when you had a little bit, uh, well, you said four times your budget, or like what was mm. the difference between the two? Like were you able to do stuff that she wasn't able to do yeah. with the subline and the beautiful, or did you still yeah. feel like you had your hands tied behind your back? It was, you know, it's a little bit of both. Um. Listen, uh, you know, a $30,000 film costs what a $30,000 film should cost, and a $3 million film costs what a $3 million. In, in both situations, there are going to be times where you feel limitations, where you feel like you don't have the resources to do, you know, what you'd fully like to do or the time, because like you said, you're, you're paying for time, essentially. So you're going to have to make some decisions that best use that time. Absolutely different. Many more people, many more people at I like to think, for me, well, my experience of it was so much different because in The Sublime and Beautiful, I was the lead actor in every scene. So I was working as an actor-director throughout. In The Sense of Rain and Lightning, I make a cameo. I have like four scenes. So predominantly, I was behind the monitor talking to the actors and making directorial decisions and only every now and then going, oh, my God, I got a scene today. What do I say? You <laughs> know, figure that out. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest difference for me. But in terms of just looking at it as a director, you, you've got to be mindful of a lot. I, I'll tell you that the first day that the biggest thing was I realized that I can't go as fast as I would like to go as I did on my $30,000 film because everyone was on the team. Everyone knew it had to go a certain speed, and I was the lead actor, so I didn't have to wait for other actors. When I was ready to act, we were shooting a scene. The first day when I didn't have actors, it was like, it bugs me. The first day, I was like, so I really had to learn to chill out, relax, trust the movie, trust the process, let them do what they wanted to do. I also did have to have a conversation with them to say, hey, guess what? We're going to shoot this so much faster than most $3 million movies because I'm going to shoot it as close to a $30,000 film as I can. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had to have that conversation, but at the same time, I couldn't lose them. You know, they're trying to do their best job. One of the conversations I had over and over again is, can I help you? by shooting something, or do you need something before we shoot something? Because that became a very important fork in the road. Oh, you mean the conversations you had with the actors? Yeah. Okay. Because I was always ready to shoot. Mm -hmm. Because that's how I worked with Lynn. And in fact, what we learned is how to shoot B-roll all the time. So I was shooting B-roll. If I didn't have an actor, Lynn and I would find stuff to shoot. Because that's just how we offer it. And, And still be ready to shoot when we had people to shoot. And I would just get my AD department. I would say, hey, you know, I know it's not first on the schedule, but if, if I've got to wait an hour for this person, but someone else can be ready first, give me something. I'll find something for them to do that we can use, you know, make the most out of the time. So that was a big difference for me was actually being okay with slowing down, trusting that I was going to get my movie, trusting that, you know, there were times that I had to, you know, I would just be overprepared by the time they got there by figuring out the day. And sometimes I would know what plan B was like, oh, if I don't get this actor for an hour, this becomes the coverage and what that could be so that I could get the most 
but oftentimes it just meant uh, having a really good conversation with the actor because they want to make the best movie. That's all they want, be, to be the best they can be in a movie that can be the best it can be. And sometimes it just means saying to them, listen, if, if you'll trust me in this moment, and that's a trust that you they learn over time, like, you know, I would say a weekend, they were much more amenable to some of the crazy ideas I had, like, yeah, we're going to shoot these things without rehearsals and stuff, even when there were things to be worked out. And I would say, hey, let's work them out on camera. If you trust that I'm not going to put anything into this final edit, it doesn't work. If we'll just do a really bad first take, we'll all learn a lot more than if we talk about it for half an hour. Sometimes yeah, just true. doing a bad take, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they feel protected, which I totally get them. No one wants to be, the, you know, out there with their, you know, the pants down. Yeah. Feeling like, oh, I'm totally exposed here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel comfortable. But there's two levels of comfort. Um, one is just, do you have enough comfort to shoot a bad take or do you, and, and trust me with that? And let us figure it all out, or do you need something before we shoot a bad take? As long as they're okay with the bad, you know, because actually all departments have to be okay with the bad take. Yeah, that's true. I mean, sound yeah. has to be okay with it. Production design has to be with, okay with it. Um, yeah, because the crew, you know, the crew could uh, walk unions, out on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you're dealing with unions, you know, there's, but everyone wants to just feel like they. Now I've got a little bit of a track record. I can point to two movies. They can look at the two movies. I've got department heads that uh, like the way we work, the way we work. So um, the actors have seen the performances in my movies. So a lot of them that came to Scent had seen Sublime. So they said, hey, maybe I'm not always going to be comfortable, but I'm going to try what this, you know, what we try and do here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because uh, once you have that track record, because a lot of people are not, they're not uh, the biggest fan of trying something new, especially if you're working with a union crew and they're so used Absolutely. to doing things a certain way and want to make sure that their yep. their body of work is protected, you know. Right, and I totally agree with that. And I usually have this conversation before, during pre-production with the entire crew, maybe the first day of filming, maybe at the first read-through, although I don't love read-throughs. And I say this, I say the worst reason to do something is because that's the way it's always been done. I said, if if that was a good reason to do anything, we'd also be living in caves. I'm not saying <laughs> that there aren't a lot of good reasons to do things the way we've always done them, but just because that's the way we've done them is not the answer. There's yeah. got to be another reason besides that's just the way we do it. Sometimes it takes someone to question conventional wisdom. That's the only time we have innovation in human history. The only mm-hmm. time we've ever had in innovation in human history is where at least somebody said, why are we doing it like this? Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of a story that uh, I heard that Robert Rodriguez told about how his mom used to always cut the ends off of a roast before putting it yep. in, the, in the oven. And then uh, yeah. then he like uh, uh, he asked his mom, oh, he's like, why you cut them off? She said, I don't know. My mom always did it. And then he asked his grandma, so grandma, why did you, why you, why do you uh, cut the ends off of the, off of the roast before you put it in the oven? She said, oh, because yep. I, I didn't have a pan that was big enough to fit it. So I just cut the ends <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, the film industry needs innovation. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot of good reasons why things do happen and mm-hmm. I'm all for those, but the answer can never be because it's always been done that way. I, yeah. I'm just... That's how done how I think. That's not how I, and those aren't the people I want to work with. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I don't bring them to the team. But if someone wants to be collaborative, imaginative, questioning, and try to do something more adventurous, more creative, more – and there's a lot of people in our industry because actually even though there is kind of a union mentality, and I don't mean to bang the unions about this, but you know, but they are set up to protect us. I, I, I want to protect us as long as everyone knows. You know, I'm the one that let my entire crew go early two hours because there was a tornado warning when the producers were like, we can't let them go with the warning. I was like, uh, we can. I can. I, I looked at it. I figured out how I could make it work, you know, in the schedule so we weren't losing at all. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can sacrifice these things. I said, you watch how they work the next two or three weeks. You know, they yeah. they were so grateful for that because they were able to be safe and let their loved ones know they were safe in this and that. So I, I'm all for the things about doing things that keep people safe because yeah. no film is, is more important than anyone's life. That's just not who I am, but I'm not for doing things just to do them. You know, there's gotta be some adventure, some questioning, some, some, some innovation and some, uh, and it's all gotta be motivated based on what a handful of us or me predominantly or uh, some people creatively or whoever wants to get into it is how do we make the best version of this film? That's okay. got to be the reason we do, we're doing something. And this is, you know, and I think like a business person, so I do think in terms of what can I do to make this more successful business-wise, you know, the business of this work better too. It sounds like you use a lot of the stuff that you've done with your first film, The Sublime Beautiful, uh, yep. with the films that you're doing now. So what, what type of advice would you have for that, that that first-time filmmaker who's trying to get his or her name out there and trying to get that, that their first feature off the ground? Well, uh, it's a good question. There's, there's several several answers that resonate with me. First and foremost, okay. people ask me how you can become a filmmaker. Um, you know, I did a Q&A at one of the film festivals, and, and that comes up, and I said, well, everyone here knows. It's, it's painfully obvious how someone becomes a filmmaker. You make a film. But people don't want to own that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're looking for they're looking for reasons not to make a film. That's fine, but I'm not gonna. But that, that's what I'm gonna tell you. You got to be aware of that and willing to own that. There's only one way to become a filmmaker, and it's not go to film school. It's actually to make a film. It's not to write a film. It's to make a film. If you write a film, then you're then you're a writer. You know, a screenwriter. So. So I think it's important, it's an empowering thing to recognize that you're the only person that determines when you become a filmmaker as soon as as you've made a film. And if you want that to be a short or a feature, that's up to you. But making them makes you a filmmaker, not making them makes you not a filmmaker (laughs) until you've made one. Mm -hmm. Um, The next thing is, I think it's really important to be okay with the word no. No takes you to your movie. So many of us think no takes us not to our movie. That makes sense. They they think no means there that ends. Yeah, that's the end of it. As mm-hmm. soon as I get a no, that is not true. No is part of the process. No's are as good as yeses. In fact, fast no's are better than slow yeses because you just <laughs> need you, you know you just need momentum. Yeah. And Hollywood has this whole myriad of matrix of things to stop you from making a movie. Yeah, as soon that's so as you true. realize that you can make your own movie. If, you, if you're willing to explore what it means to do so and willing to challenge every preconceived notion about what that means and how to do it, that's who's making movies out there. Disappointment shouldn't be a no, but if you do get disappointment, because we all get disappointment, 
something I used as an actor that I now use as a human being, as a filmmaker, is I put that in my belly like coal, and it just makes me burn hotter. You know what I mean, that's fuel. I get true disappointment, like something bothers me that I feel like, you know, something didn't go the way I wanted it to, or someone I wanted in, involved said no, which is totally their right. But you can take disappointment and use it as coal in the furnace of your belly to make you burn hotter. Yeah, I think that's I think that's about it. I mean, oh, that's good. That's, uh, all the rest all the rest is just a sort of candy uh, <laughs> striping or, or or sort of trimming. Yeah. Um, like what type of filmmaker uh, are your films any good? That's so subjective. Yeah. I would share this: if you're not making studio films or studio adjacent films, make films only you can make in a way that you can only make them. If you only get one of those things, because this line of beautiful is a pretty tired log line of a movie that you could see every week on uh, Lifetime. But I made it in a way, I made it something in a way that no one else kind of had, or at least it felt to enough people that I had done something, um, you know, original with the, uh, the approach to how I made that movie. So it felt not like those other movies. It didn't feel like a Lifetime movie story was basically something that could have appeared you know not to knock lifetime movies there mm -hmm. no, i don't like them i just don't <laughs> i just don't want to be negative because again it's subjective uh -huh. what's a good movie or bad movie is up to someone else yeah. i would say don't worry too much about that and make a movie um yeah. but but if you do want to crack into the film festival world like you part uh part of your question to me was how do i make a name for myself yes Look at the filmmakers that are doing it. Don't copy anyone else. I mean, use it, anything and everything for inspiration. You got to find your own way to tell a story, and you got to find your own story. That's what people resonate. I mean, really, if you do that, you're already in the top ten percent of the films that are submitted to film festivals in terms of what you'll consider. If 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 film festival programmers are looking at your film and thinking anyone I went to film school could have and would have made a very similar version of this film, probably in trouble. You're probably oh, okay. not gonna, because it's not the level of confidence that's gonna matter. Does that make sense? It's yeah. many people are making good, you know, quality movies. So, so if you just make any movie that anyone would have made in the same way that they would have made it, but did it at a high quality, that's not gonna be enough to make you change your career. Okay. Wow. Well, thanks. Thanks for that's your yeah. Thanks for your time and thanks for all this knowledge Absolutely. that you shared with us. I mean, I learned a lot. I, I know the audience is gonna get a lot from it. Yeah, that's that's about it, man. Thank All right, Tyrone. All right, thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right, there we go. What did I tell you guys? See, Blake Robbins shared a lot with us, and uh, this is one episode that you know, even even before I uh, made it live for you guys, I listened to it a couple of times. I think this would be a good episode for you guys to go back and listen to a couple of times too, because he talks about a lot of stuff that is very useful. That is useful now if you're writing. That'll be useful for you if you're writing. It'd be useful for you if you're, you know, finished with your script and you're getting into the process of breaking your script down for production and also some uh, insight of on what to do while you're in production. So this was a nice, meaty episode. I'm happy that you guys made it all the way to the end. Uh, just like I said before, if you like this episode, please like, share, subscribe. I have the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and SoundCloud. There's also other cool episodes that we have on HollywoodHateMe.com, which is the actual website. So go ahead and check it out. Check us out. And I hope to have you guys back for more. Peace. Peace.
Thanks for listening to Hollywood Hate Me with T. Huff. We here at Hollywood Hate Me love your support and can't wait to give you some movie-making insights in the next episode. 